Hello, Portland State and greater Portland area. Thank you for joining us on Vanguard News slash Situational Significance. So it looks like uh, last quarter we had two separate shows. We had the Vanguard News um, vlog and also the Situational Significance podcast. So we are merging those two and we're going to have two new hosts. My name is Anthony Montez, editor at the PSU Vanguard. I'm Nick Townsend. I'm the arts and culture editor at the PSU Vanguard. And we're going to have a great show for you today. Um, let's talk a little bit about our structure. Okay, yeah. So we're just going to have – look, college students don't want to hear depressing stuff all the time. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to you know, liven up uh, the content that we have for you and kind of uh, you know, spin it in a, in a really fun direction. What do you think? Yeah, I mean I agree with that. But I think you know, let's, get, let's get the important stuff out there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, <laughs> right? Because you need your vegetables and you need your pastries in the morning, right? So you want to start with the fun stuff, though? Let's start with All the right. fun stuff. Go for it. All right. So our first story for you, the Florida Florida Easter Bunny story. So a Florida man was arrested after running a stop sign, crashing his motorcycle into a carport and fleeing the scene, according to Florida authorities. Uh, the suspect, Antoine McDonald, was later found by authorities wearing an Easter Bunny costume and hiding in the back seat of his gray vehicle near his home. McDonald became an overnight phenomenon when a video captured him fighting a man on the streets of Orlando last year. When authorities found him, he told them, I wasn't in any crash. I'm the Orlando Easter Bunny. Google it, according to the arrest report. Uh, authorities asked him to remove his costume before arresting him. What do you think? What, would he, what do you think he was? You know, I mean, he doesn't need to think it out. He's the Orlando Easter Bunny. I mean, that he's ego. always got a plan. He yeah. always, <laughs> and he was riding he's a always, motorcycle. He's always one step ahead. You know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was thinking, why? Why not just wear the the Easter Bunny outfit on the motorcycle? Well, I'm assuming that like the Easter Bunny outfit is too large, and that like your thighs wouldn't fit on the motorcycle seat. Oh, okay. Okay, but then he went home and then put it on and tried hiding in the backseat of his car. So he knew the cops were going to come after him. Did he think that, like, by wearing See, the like, costume? The issue here is you're analyzing it from the perspective of Anthony. You're not analyzing it from the perspective of the Orlando Easter Bunny. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You you could never understand. <laughs> Just simply couldn't understand. <sighs> All right, our next story for you. Animal Shelter says world's worst cat is up for adoption. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, first off, this was going to hit home because I have two cats at home, as you know. Are they the worst cats? No, they're the best cats. Well, only when they're trying to wake me up in the morning for food. But looks like here at Bakersville, North Carolina, the world's worst cat is available for adoption. Uh, just ask the Mitchell County Animal Rescue Organization in North Carolina. The shelter about 55 miles northeast of Asheville, North Carolina, is waiving adoption fees in the hope that someone will take the cat named Perdita off their hands. Uh, the group says on its Facebook page, quote, we thought she was sick. Turns out she's just a shirk, end quote. A tongue-in-cheek profile of the foul-tempered feline says her dislikes include dogs, children, the Dixie Chicks, Disney movies, Christmas, and last but not least, hugs. It says she likes lurking, pretending to be sick, and staring into your soul until you feel as if you may never be cheerful again. 
It adds, quote, she's single and ready to be socially awkward with a socially awkward human who understands personal space. Nick. I want to give credit to AP News. Of course. you got to give credit. very important story. Of course. Nick, I think this is the perfect cat for you. Yeah. No. I mean, this is kind of what my cat at home is like. So. Does she want a sister? Yeah. I think I need a second cat that's just awful in every way and doesn't enjoy anything. I think that could really change the vibe of my room. I think the ladies would like that. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Nick is going to have a new cat soon. All right. You want to dig into the dig into the heavy stuff? Yeah, this is heavy, but also we're going to you know build our way up to it. Yeah. Um, this is a labor struggle, and uh, you know me. I'm very much about the labor struggles. So there's um, a California state bill meant to protect independent contractors in the ride-hailing industry. That's, you know, Lyft and Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, this bill has sparked new organization efforts in various sectors across California, but in especially uh, the adult entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, this story is from The Intercept. All right. So a California state bill meant to protect independent contractors in the ride-hailing... Oh, sorry. I'm one paragraph up. Soldiers of Pole, a Los Angeles-based group of dancers who are working to unionize their colleagues statewide, are pushing back against exploitative practices by club owners, such as making dancers sign contracts under duress and charging exorbitant house fees to perform. After the bill's passage, some dancers reported their house fees jumped from $65 to $200. Club owners and big players of the industry point to inconsistent enforcement and cite the bill as unjust on the side of employers. Uh, Ryan Carlson, director of operations for Deja Vu, an adult entertainment giant, said AB5 has been so costly that four of their clubs have shut down. Uh, He added that Deja Vu has been paying minimum wage since they converted their their contractors to employees in December 2018, but the competitors have, quote, chosen to ignore AB5, end quote. Wait, so is this defense that they're paying minimum wage? That's the defense? Uh, Yeah, and I think the minimum wage isn't even $15 an hour in California. It's not. It's below that for sure. Well, and if they're getting tipped, which they probably are, I don't think it would be. All right. Because I know for uh, the service industry. Yeah, 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 it would be different. It would be lower. It would be lower, but I'm pretty sure California doesn't abide by that that oh. uber low wage that mm. you know some of the southern states yeah. do where they're getting you know we're, uh, like three or four dollars yeah. an hour which is just exploitation all yeah. right am davies a board member of soldiers of the pole the union said it's up to them as business owners to determine how to maintain their bottom line and how to properly pay their employees they have dropped the ball and relied on exploitation of dancers for the last three decades and now they're unprepared and this is true right yeah when I you mean, have a business model where you don't really have to pay good wages to your uh, your dancers and your performers. And then and, you get mad at the government for telling you to pay good wages. Right. And, and then you build an organization right with that low uh, overhead, that low cost overhead. So, yeah. And then and then now they're now they're uh, uh, now they're just a big dispute. Here's a fun little tidbit. I'm reading that story. Deja Vu. That mm-hmm. production company. One of their biggest spokespeople is uh, Stormy Daniels. Oh, my God. Really? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. And uh, while AB5, this bill that protects independent contractors, was um, you know being uh, debated in the state capitol, uh, Stormy Daniels wrote an op-ed for the LA Times saying that the bill would hurt women, uh, performers, but also it would hurt people who are trying to you know maintain their independence as they work yeah right because now 
they're you know subject to certain rules that their employers impose mm-hmm. on them because now they're actually employees instead of yeah. independent contractors. Well, but this union seems to be dispute, disputing that entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully clubs develop around the concept of protecting workers in this industry. I mean, that's the hope, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to move on? Let's do it. All right. MBS and Bezos. If you don't know what MBS, that's uh, Mohammed bin Salman. He is the monarch of Saudi Arabia. And it's a love story for the ages. Yes. Jeff Bezos. It's like a love triangle. It's Jeff Bezos, Mohammed bin Salman, and Donald Trump, right? Also, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, presumably. Oh, wow. So it's not a love triangle. What is that? Love love square? All right. (laughs) The Amazon billionaire, Jeff Bezos, has had his mobile phone hacked in 2018 after receiving a WhatsApp message that had apparently been sent from the personal account of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. This is from The Guardian. All right. The encrypted message from the number used by Mohammed bin Salman is believed to have included a malicious file that infiltrated the phone of the world's richest man, according to the results of a digital forensic analysis. This analysis found it highly probable that the intrusion into the phone was triggered by an infected video file sent from the account of the Saudi heir to Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post. But the two men had uh, been having a seemingly friendly WhatsApp exchange went on uh, May 1st of that year. Uh, the unsolicited file was sent, according to The Guardian. Large amounts, amounts of the data uh, was exfiltrated from Bezos' phone within hours. Agnes Agnes Kalamard, the United Nations special reporter who investigates extrajudicial killings, is also investigating the alleged hack and said the allegations reinforce other reporting pointing to a pattern of targeted surveillance of perceived opponents and those of broader strategic importance to the Saudi authorities, including nationals and non-nationals. These allegations are relevant as well to ongoing evaluation of claims about the Crown Prince's involvement in the 2018 murder of of Saudi and Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That's kind of unfair, Nick. It's a little bit unfair. Everyone knows that if the crown prince tells you to kill somebody, right? You got to do it. You got to go do it. I mean, you don't, but you got to do what you got to do. Right. Or Wait, so <laughs> go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so my <laughs> my confusion with this story is I assumed the people like Bezos and MBS communicated through subordinates and it's really interesting to me that apparently they were just texting each other like the way i text yeah my just on whatsapp Thailand on whatsapp yeah and they were just having like a what were they talking about i don't know rich people things yeah what like they were just like oh hey how's saudi arabia good oh well how's amazon also good all right here's an encrypted file you should open on your phone <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really I'm I'm missing the premise of the story. Yeah. Well, let me give you some contextual analysis. I threw that in that uh quote from um Agnes uh Calamard from the United Nations. Yeah. Because there's been so many stories. The Oregonian um Kavanaugh is the last name of the reporter for the Oregonian. I think it might have been James or Joshua. He uh reported a story about um Saudi nationals or, you know, folks, Saudi uh, folks that are here on student visas or here on temporary visas uh, committing crimes and being helped by the Saudi government to, you know, escape the United States and go back. And on top of that, there is uh, the Saudi Arabia doesn't actually um, uh, doesn't actually have extradition laws. They Mm -hmm. refuse to extradite folks from the United States. 
or from uh, the, Saudi Arabia to the United States. Yeah. So right, you have like I think there was one person that was ran over down in the southeast Portland mm-hmm. by uh, someone um, by you know, a Saudi national by a Saudi yeah. national. That was a big story, and. There's also another story about a Saudi national that was hired by Twitter that mm-hmm. was spying on dissidents mm-hmm. and opposition of people through Twitter. Through Twitter, yeah. and sliding into the DMs, sliding into yeah. the DMs, and then you have the Khashoggi incident. Well, I mean, come on, we all know that MBS ordered that killing. We all know. We all know. It's like the Jerry Epstein thing. Yeah, I mean, MBS don't come or after Jeffrey us, Epstein. but no. we all know. <laughs> Our producer is telling us we're not allowed to talk about this anymore. Yeah, hold on. I think, oh, our producer, our producer has hung himself, looks like. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. <laughs> it must have been an accident. All right. Candace Peace. Oh, so Candace Peace. The Candace The Peace. Candace Peace. Okay. PSU's own Candace. Candace Avalos, advisor for Greek Life and Associated Students of Portland State University, is running for a seat on Portland City Council. Avalos originally announced her campaign for the commissioner seat in August 2019 with a platform focused on reforming Portland's city government, houselessness, transportation, and increasing transparency between Portland Community City Council and Portland Police. Avalos's first goal, though, is to change the structure of Portland government from voting in citywide elections to district-based voting. Quote, I think at the very minimum we should have district representation, end quote, Avalos said. Quote, being the last city, literally the last city over 100,000 people that still doesn't have district representation, I think is unacceptable, especially as our city continues to grow. And it's unclear that different neighborhoods are not being represented in the city. End quote. Portland is is set to hold local primary elections on May 19th with four out of the five city council seats on the ballot, the mayor and three commissioners. All of the city council positions are voted on in citywide elections and serve four-year terms. And I think it's a great idea that Avalos is running on this this idea of changing the the citywide elections to a district. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm from a much smaller town than Portland, and we have like five or six districts. Same. It's weird. Yeah. I'm from San Jose, and we've always had district. uh, And it's been great because – it's such a diverse community down yeah. in California, and little Saigon that we have mm-hmm. there has always had a Vietnamese representative. Mm-hmm. Always, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, if you think about it in Portland, I mean, the needs of like Northwest Twenty Third are vastly different than the needs of people on Southeast Eighty Second, and it's weird that they're catering or that elected officials are catering to both of them in the same way. Well, here's the thing: my biggest problem with the citywide elections is you. Right. When you're looking at elections, right, you have mm-hmm. to look at who who is your base, who is going to be the folks that turn out and get you into office. If it's citywide, really what what's going on is most of those commissioners are going to be courting those people in twenty uh, Northwest 23. Yeah, the old people. Yeah, yeah. The, the folks that are usually turning out to vote mm-hmm. and the folks that are a little more affluent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, I bring up San Jose, one uh, supervisor – city council member actually proposed changing the district to citywide to citywide mm-hmm. and he got a lot of flack for it because I, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's a great thing that Candace is running on uh, and, I, and I hope that it actually becomes like um, a big talking point a big a big a big uh, uh, you know campaign centerpiece mm-hmm. you know yeah I, yeah I hope that leads to a wider discussion yep but at the same time we know that 
it's power that you're dealing with here. Yeah. And uh, some folks that are elected, they it's easy. It's a lot easier if you are, um, you know, only have a sliver yeah. of the base, mm-hmm. and that you're not necessarily changing the way that you do your politics. Well, and um, who was the city councilor in Portland, or I guess commissioner recently, who um said that she wasn't going to be accepting big money donations. I saw a quote where she was like, um, "She was like, yeah, I know I could go to a two or three people that know me well and get a couple of thousand dollars and be set, but I don't want to do it like that this time." Yeah. Well, if I had to guess, it was probably Miss Hardesty. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Hardesty. I'm not sure, but someone someone said that. So, That's awesome. End quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and right. our last story. It looks like. Yep. So- Sesame Street for Middle East Refugees. This is pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, go ahead and take it away. Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit educational organization that runs Sesame Street, has launched a new locally produced Arabic TV program for the millions of children dealing with displacement in Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Lebanon. This story is from the Associated Press. The new program called Alan Simsim, which means Welcome Sesame in Arabic, features Elmo, Cookie Monster, and Grover, as well as two brand new Muppets, the boy monster Jad, who had to leave his home, and Basma, a purple girl monster who befriends the young stranger, and of course, an adorable goat named Mazuza. That's a really good name for a goat. It is. I think I'm going to get a goat named Mazuza. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Since the Syrian conflict broke out in 2011, some 5 million children have been displaced internally and outside Syria, according to the UN-backed Commission of Inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic. Sherry Weston, uh, president of Social Impact and Philanthropy philanthropy (laughs) at Sesame Workshop, said, The thing that became very apparent in our work on the ground is how critical the need was for the children of the region and children who have been affected by the traumatic events to have the social and emotional skills they need. End quote. Each 26-minute show will explore emotions experienced by all kids, but specifically trauma, offering coping skills for feelings like anger, fear, frustration, nervousness, and loneliness. And this is part of, like, a new uh, movement, especially here in the United States, right? This social-emotional learning, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Being able well, I to- mean, but Sesame Street has been championing, championing that for, like, 50 years. Mm-hmm. But it's also good that they're evolving as well, yeah. right? That they're they're seeing the current, you know, social and political conditions mm-hmm. and they're developing new content and new programs mm-hmm. that can help kids with you know, you know, through this trauma of war. Mm-hmm. Right. Well and I mean it's crazy that um I mean the people that we're looking to to step forward for a crisis like this are Sesame Street and that they're kind of killing it. <laughs> it's you- just it's not who I would expect to be doing the most. Yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, if Sesame Street can do this, I think other people can too. Maybe you have a case. Maybe the federal government should get involved. Maybe is that what you're implying? No, but like other kids shows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, you know, most other kids shows are profitable. That's true. PBS yeah. is a different model. Oh yeah, but you know, what would be nice. Is if, I mean, it's not going to happen, but yeah, of course. But the, if Sesame Street started talking about you know U.S. foreign policy, that'd be kind of kind of interesting, right? Uh, I'm not sure I could handle that. <laughs> that might be more of the Muppets territory. Oh, I don't even know if they have that kind of. Well, tact. 
but they can do like I mean the Muppets do parodies of like popular movies. I don't see why we couldn't do like Muppets take on the Iraq War. Or like the Muppets do their version of Team America World Police. Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, that could be <laughs> but, but the point is it's 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 uh it's ridiculous that we have this even happening now, you know? Yeah. That we have mm-hmm. this this nonprofit that has to deal uh that has to teach refugees about how to deal with deal trauma, trauma from war and displacement yeah i mean which we helped cause by the way you know what i mean we're we're really deep in it if sesame street is having to deal with traumatized children who are refugees of a war started by the united states allegedly allegedly i think this is a good time for a break allegedly sesame street is helping yeah should we run um should we run a spot let's run a spot in the studio howdy and now we're gonna go into our deep dive segment and we're gonna be talking about an issue that's affecting every city in the country rising rents and changing real estate landscapes Fun. gentrification price gouging and single-family zoning all play into a force that's pushing many people out of city centers and into suburbs Beyond affecting residents of a city, rising rents also change the cultural makeup of a city, specifically the food and restaurants available. It's also changed who's able to break into the restaurant industry. In cities on both coasts, rising urban rents and changing demands from landowners have pushed local small restaurants out of city centers and into smaller neighborhoods and suburbs. As individual restaurants get forced into moving or closure, chain restaurants and restaurant groups move in to claim the higher traffic real estate. In 2019, Portland lost many long-standing businesses in the metro area, including the Pearl Bakery, Little Bird Bistro, Smallwares, the Trifecta Tavern, Cloud Forest Chocolate, and the Country Cat. Of those, only the Smallwares space and Trifecta Tavern spaces have new tenants. The rest remain unoccupied. But perhaps the most significant loss of the year wasn't a restaurant at all, the Alder Street Food Cart Pod. The Alder Street Food Carts stood on 10th and Alder, north of the city target. Since beginning with the German sausage cart, uh, Altengratz, in the late 90s, the cart exploded into a major destination for tourists, taking the red line to and from the airport, business people on their downtown lunch break, and food enthusiasts seeking to try the latest food to hit the Portland scene. The Alder Street pod shut down over the summer of 2019 to make way for new development, specifically a Ritz-Carlton. I spoke to Brooke Jackson-Gleeden, the editor-in-chief of Eater Portland, about their reaction to the move and what it has come to mean to the Portland restaurant community. 2019 was a really tough year for restaurant closings yeah. in Portland. Um, you know, we had uh, Trifecta Tavern was, was a tough closure. Ken Forkish, again, is, is a pretty prominent name in Portland, and he closed his large-scale restaurant um, in Inner Southeast. That was a tough one. You have some old-school places that were, you know, Again, like discussed nationally, um, you know, Country Cat in Montevilla and Little Bird Gabriel Rucker's restaurant in downtown Portland both closed last year. Um, you Again, I would say the Alder Street Food Cart Pod was a pretty significant closure, again, just as uh, somewhat of a debater for food carts and for young talent in the Portland area. 
Beyond removing an entry point for young talent in the business, Jackson Gleden also says that the closure is emblematic of the larger forces at play in Portland. I think it's a, a classic example and, and perhaps an apt metaphor for what's happened downtown because that food cart plot is being replaced by a red girl. So you don't have the same room for new talent and maybe talent that doesn't have access to capital as easily, which means that the actual restaurant market in many cases becomes less diverse and um, perhaps more reliant on the same small group of people. According to reporting by the Oregon Public Broadcasting, the downtown Ritz-Carlton will open in 2023 with 35 floors and a mix of business, retail, and restaurant spaces. Downtown Portland hosts over a dozen high-end, heavily financed hotels such as the Ace, the Woodlark, the Benson, and the Nines. Hotels provide a more reliable revenue stream to landowners than new restaurants, which may require more assistance and aren't as guaranteed to succeed as well-known luxury hotel chains. But by replacing food carts and local chef-owned restaurants with high-end chains, Portland has hollowed out the affordable mid-range section of the restaurant market that provides reasonable prices to consumers and a place for young talent to develop. I spoke to Nick Zukin, chef-owner of Mimero Mole and Zap Pizza, both located in the neglected downtown Chinatown neighborhood, about the situation his community of chef-owners is currently facing. I think it's a, it's a bunch of things all at once. Like, um, you know, rents are definitely going up, um, taxes and fees on uh, both landlords and rents are going up, um, which increases your rent as well. And then you have, you know, labor's been going up rapidly over the last uh, several years. Um, you know, other fees are going up. Food costs are going up. So you have all of these things at once, which uh, just makes it much tougher than it used to be because you just have so many, uh, you know, costs that are higher. Um, and then a lot of these things create, you know, higher barriers to entry. I mean, um, and on top of that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Definitely 20 years ago, uh, landlords were a lot more willing to work with a restaurant on. As Nick sees it, all these factors weigh in favor of large chains and disadvantaged local talent. I mean, you know, it's understandable to a degree. I mean, a landlord wants to know that uh, that their tenant is going to be successful. Um, but it's, it's just another barrier to entry for small business. So... You know, if you're a, if you're a large company, um, you get you know the higher the barriers to entry, the more advantage you get as a large company or as a chain. These barriers to entry have crippled the model that Portland restaurateurs have followed for decades: open a food cart, build awareness and excitement, generate capital, create your own brick and mortar restaurant. Jackson Gleden says that this model doesn't exist the same way it did during the heyday of the Alder Street food cart pod. You know, there are food cart pods that have sprung up in other parts of the city. But, you know, the Alder Street pod was one of the most significant spots for carts to start out. And in Portland, you'll see a lot of restaurant, um, you know, young restaurant talent either start in food carts or in pop-ups. So a lot of restaurant owners are not doing the cart model because it doesn't feel as stable as, you know, a pop-up model. And, and leaning on individual events as opposed to having a stable business. And, you know, that works for some people, but it is 
significantly more difficult to have a stable sense of income to be able to build up capital to actually start a business, like a restaurant. Zukin sees the future heading even more towards corporate conglomeration and a dissolution of the restaurant model that Portland is known for. No, you're, you're not going to have that 50-seat restaurant with a chef or owner uh, in Portland, I don't think, going forward. Um, and to the degree you do, it's going to be part of a restaurant group or there's going to be money backing it that you don't really know about. It's not really a chef-owned restaurant anymore. This isn't to say that there won't be small independent restaurants in Portland, Zukin says, but it will become less common. It's going to be a place that catches lightning in a bottle. There will be exceptions, but very rare exceptions. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, that was the model that Portland was known for. Yeah, and that's, this is a great, great piece, by the way. You did a great job. Um, yeah, that's what happens, right, when real estate speculation gets out of hand, mm-hmm. right? And when, um, I mean, when we're overestimating the value of properties and overestimating the the price that consumers are willing to pay. Yeah. And I'm going to push back a little bit on Nick's. I mean, I understand Nick is in the restaurant. Nick Zukin, yeah. Yeah, is in the, uh, not you, Nick, of course. Yeah. Nick Zukin, a little bit on this idea that wages will be, uh, is, is like you know, going to bring down small restaurants yeah. because there's a study that was done in Seattle um, about that very uh-huh. topic when they raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Yeah. It actually showed that the restaurant industry grew. Yeah, because, I mean, talent's going to be more attracted to $15 an hour versus 10 And you're not going to have that horrible turnover that you mm-hmm. usually have in the restaurant and service mm-hmm. industry. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think, um, I think, what Zukin might have been pointing to, I don't want to speak, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what he might have been pointing to was um, in the short term, if the landlord is jacking up your prices and if the city fees are going up. And then the wages think, are going up. And then up. I think if all of a sudden yeah. your labor costs are increasing by mm-hmm. 50%, I think in the short term, I mean, that's a jolt. And, and I get yeah. that because, you know, when you're running a business, you're, you're projecting revenues, you're projecting expenditures, right? And yeah. if those projections are constantly changing year by year, it's kind of hard to, you know, build up that business model, you know? Yeah. And I mean, um, well, and it's, um, I mean, it's exactly what he was talking about is it the, something we talked about in our interview is, um, barriers of entry and how a chain or like the Ritz Carlton, it can be unprofitable for two years yeah. and the Ritz, you know, the Ritz Corporation is just going to soak that up. Yeah. But if you're a small business owner mm-hmm. and labor costs go up, you don't have, you don't have, you know, a shell corporation where you can store that or whatever. Yeah. They don't have an account in, yeah. you know, Bermuda or Switzerland or anything. There's no, there's no extra money for costs like that, that a big business can soak up. And I mean, the more, um, the more rigid the real estate market gets, I think the more these big businesses are going to have the advantage. And I think that's what Zukin was pointing towards. I a hundred percent agree with that mm-hmm. as well. Um, but it's so true, though. You go to all these little pods, you'll get some really, mm-hmm. really good food well, and at a very affordable price. Some of the best brick-and-mortar restaurants in Portland started as food carts. I mm-hmm. mean, have you been to, like, Nong's Kaumangai? No. Oh, man. It's incredible. Or um, Fried Egg, I'm in Love, or... I've had that one. That was good. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of restaurants in the city started as food carts, and um, that's just not a business model that we're going to see anymore. And... 
Yeah, and I could see the appeal too, right? People coming in, moving to Portland to do that. I know people yeah. who did, who did that. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, sometimes it works, and sometimes it really doesn't. But know? it's at least an alternative, right, to the capital capital intensive uh, yeah. uh, model of having to open your own yeah. restaurants, finding ten wealthy people that are willing to support your idea before mm-hmm. you even get it on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that I mean, what's your biggest takeaway here? I mean, nothing good. <laughs> uh, you I know, mean, I, I feel like the heart of this story was um, I – so I follow Nick Zukin on Twitter. Right on. And um, he was tweeting about something that I have personally been thinking about a lot. And it's just that all of these restaurants that I really enjoyed and that I know a lot of people enjoyed seemingly shut down out of nowhere. I'm talking about the Pearl Bakery, like in the story, but I'm also talking about like Southeast Grind, the only 24-hour coffee shop in Portland, Mm -hmm. shut down overnight because of a dispute with their landlord. And it's just like, what, you know, what's going to happen to the city that we live in? And what's the city's response to this? Yeah, and what's the public's response to it? Because we seem sort of blindsided by it. Well, I mean, the city's response to it is, well, because... you know, the Portland Housing Bureau, I'm shifting to housing here, yeah. but it's similar. Cool. similar yeah. right? it, their their, their uh, idea to fix this is always going to be a market mechanism. Mm-hmm. This is a supply issue here. Mm-hmm. When in reality, the, the, the dynamics of this city is changing mm-hmm. and the economy of the city is changing mm-hmm. with it. So I think that there needs to be a full front, kind of like full front press court kind of approach to this. Yeah. And we got to approach it in different angles here. Maybe even consider... Um, some of these smaller businesses could even try doing like uh, a community trust or some kind of cooperative yeah. so that they can – A restaurant. Well, I mean so there, um, there's a precedent for that because um, I don't know if you know Eam, the Thai barbecue restaurant. Mm-mm. Yeah. So that's um, a dual project between three restaurateurs in Portland, um, a couple of which started with food cart pods actually. But then they pooled their successes together and then they opened this new place and it's consistently being ranked the best restaurant of the year in Portland. So sticking together. But yeah. th- I think that's a little different than what I'm talking about here because that's what happens with conglomerates, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, because that's the thing about – So you're mm. talking about maybe something more like um, – do you know the Portland Mercado? Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking – I yeah. love yeah. the Portland Mercado. The best tacos. Yeah. The best. Everything. They even had this Haitian cart, Haitian cart there that was yeah. so good for a long time. And mm-hmm. they just, But they also closed. That's interesting. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but – Right. This there's this idea of like capitalist development. This is what happens. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not I mean, it's the story of the last two decades on the West Coast, definitely. Yeah, but with the conglomerates, right? The thing about, you know, capitalism and when you create businesses is the big paradoxes of Although you have this kind of like principled stance on competition, at the end of the day, what happens is monopolies start to occur. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's one part that, but it's also another part that those monopolies get so big and they have so much power and so much wealth and they have, and then they go move into these cities, right? Yeah. Think about it, you have all those resources and all, all that power mm-hmm. and you start to develop. Yeah. What that power and what that wealth does to those communities. Right, you don't necessarily even have to take into consideration. Yeah, the way those businesses, um, you know, try to build bridges is not by going to those communities; it's just by going to you know city council yeah. and, and making friends and mm-hmm. and you know hanging out in the same parties. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're talking about um, the 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 Amazon bidding competition from last year. 
the Amazon bidding competition is is exemplifies yeah. the capitalist development model. Yeah. Right. You Go move into in a there, city. Yeah. Try and get as many tax breaks as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't bother making any sort of concessions with the community you're infiltrating. Yeah. Or yeah, don't develop, right? Yeah. Don't develop because mm-hmm. who knows what your business is going to have as far as impact on, right? The housing prices or the, yeah. the, the rent mm-hmm. prices, what it's going to have on the community. What, are you polluting, right? Yeah. Um, what wages are you paying? Mm-hmm. Your business is has to be, uh, you have to come in and say, how can I integrate into this community so that one, yes, I am profitable, right? And I am providing a service, but also, I'm I'm doing that in a way where I'm including the communities so that they can have input so that that so that even though we are a chain this chain can be specific to Portland mm-hmm. and it can actually succeed within the values of, of the Portland community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly that's just not what doesn't that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because yeah. profit is I mean the Mercado is, I think is an example that more people should look to. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should do more of a deep dive on that later. Well, I can just put a deep dive of tamale in my belly. Ooh. All right. <laughs> I think that's a good place to call it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. All right. You've been listening to Situational Significance, a co-production between the PSU Vanguard and KPSU. And that's all we have for you this week. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and online at psuvanguard.com to read our latest coverage of the stuff you care about. Thanks again. My name is Anthony Montes. All right, and I'm Nick Townsend.